This is the Macworld Podcast, episode 451 for April 8th, 2015. We're brought to you this week by The Great Courses, Harry's, and Casper. Hello, folks. Welcome back to the Macworld Podcast. I'm Glenn Fleischman, a senior contributor at Macworld. And with me this week, as usual, is Susie Oaks, the executive editor of Macworld. Hello, Susie. Hi, Glenn. How are you? I am uh, suffering from the heartbreak of allergies. It's, uh, it's allergy season in Seattle, which is most of spring. And uh, though I've staged, my body's staged a mighty defense, I'm still, I'm in very white mode right now. I talk <laughs> very, very low. Cool. It's always good for podcasting when your voice is down an octave. Uh, well, we've got some, uh, a few interesting bits of news this week. Uh, some things that are timely and some a little less so. A time, see, that's a, that's a call forward we'll be talking about in a minute. Uh, I want to do a little follow-up first, though, uh, before we get started. Uh, so talk about uh, uh, payment systems. We've talked about them a lot because Apple Pay, it's not just that it's a, a big thing or could be a big thing, but it's part of a wave of systems coming. And um, you and I like to make fun of <laughs> a system called currency. And uh, we make fun of it because it's it's got a lot of issues that we've talked about before. It's a merchant uh focused system. So it's Walmart, 7-Eleven, Dunkin' Donuts, Sears, Best Buy, ExxonMobil, and Gap are some of the companies uh, involved in the consortium. And it involves QR codes and registering bank account information and so forth. And uh, there was just news this week, which you can read on any of the fine IDG sites on Macworld.com at all, that a currency is going to be rolled out in one market by mid-2015. I'm so excited about that. Are you excited as well? Uh, no, not really. <laughs> yeah, um, it sounds kind of terrible. You're definitely giving you know Walmart access to your bank account. Um, but yeah, what's did they announce what the single market is? I don't. I didn't see an announcement. It's not I think in this article. Hmm. Yeah, I think I think it's one of those you know you'll know it when you see it kinds of things because they've got a. It's going to be a huge education campaign for them because their system doesn't work like any of the systems out there. And Apple showed not that. I, I think Apple Pay doesn't show that Apple did it right. I mean, I guess they did. You know, it's funny. I don't want to always be like, oh yeah, Apple did it right. Everybody else did it wrong because it's not like that. It's Apple put it out on flagship phones. They supported it deeply. They worked with all the merchants. They they rolled it out in a consistent way where Google doesn't have that control of its ecosystem. So Google had a working solution, but they couldn't get all the pieces in order. They set up all the work that I think Apple actually was able to leverage. And now Google's taking advantage of it and Samsung Pay will come and so forth. Currency is a totally different thing. It doesn't use NFC, near field communications. And it um, while it will you know likely, let's assume it'll be secure, it doesn't have the properties that people are already being trained to use with an Apple phone or a or a, an Android phone. Yeah, and it's not replacing. It's not um, tied to your credit card. It's actually trying to replace your credit card, so you won't get the the same protections you might get from from using a credit card at, at a store. I assume they're going to have to step up if something goes wrong. Because if there's a breach and people's information is is misused, then I can't imagine that this consortium would just try to walk away or, or say it wasn't their problem. Uh, but it's just, it's just messier. And the thing that I see too is, as we've talked about before as well, chip and sign is coming and chip and pin uh, in America. I've just gotten my second card. It's funny. I'm all of a sudden the card, my cards are expiring. So I have, I think five, five, five different cards I carry, you know, one's a debit for a bank account or a business account. One's a debit for personal. I have an Amex for hotel points. I've got an, uh, Visa for um, Amazon points. I'm, I'm a totally branded product person, right? <laughs> so I only have two of the five or six cards I have have chips in them, but I, I'll get all of them by um, October, and as will we all. So all of our cards that can act as credit cards will have chips, and in some cases our banks will require that we sign. They won't let us use a PIN at a merchant. In other cases, it'll require a PIN, and the merchant will have to take it. So once those systems are in place, all of our credit cards are going to be these, you know, you, you put them in and they get spat back out at you to read the card. And some credit cards will also have NFC built in and be touchless. So you'll be able to tap the card. So you go into a merchant like The Gap and you've got a touchless card or an Apple Pay and they'll be like, no, no, we use this other thing where you take your phone out and scan a QR code. Are you set up? It'll only take you 10 minutes. It's like, no. Yeah, that's crazy. Seems a little nuts to me that that's going to happen. But 
They're trying. They want the capture marketing information, and, and ostensibly they'll tie in uh, affinity clubs. So if you want to use, you know, your gap points or whatever they have, they may make you try to use this. But I, I don't think it's going to be successful. Sounds very complicated to me. Yeah, it really does. Um, the whole QR code thing is going to be confusing to people. You have to unlock your phone, and then I think you have to open the app and unlock that with a pin, and then show your phone screen, and then they will scan a car, you know, code off that. And that's just a lot of friction. So, yeah, it's gonna be it's gonna be weird because people are gonna be learning these new you know chip systems in their credit cards, and now they'll be competing systems with your phone. Like if you have a Samsung phone, it'll you know have Samsung Pay. Obviously, Apple is just going with Apple Pay. But if you have you know an Android phone that works with Android Pay, or you know do you use currency? Like they're people are going to have more than one choice. So figuring out which is the best to use, I mean, you're not going to get a lot of chances. Like if currency is clunky, people aren't going to keep going back to it because they don't have to. And, you know, the systems we already have will be easier. So, so they really have to get it right, right out of the gate, or it's just not going to go anywhere. The other bit of follow-up I wanted to have uh, this week is a security issue. Is um, As regular listeners know, I read a weekly security and privacy column called Private Eye at Macworld, and uh, I wrote recently about a slightly obscure thing that affects all of us, <laughs> as a lot of security <laughs> issues are. And uh, there are these entities called certificate authorities, there's hundreds of them around the world, and they sign off on the digital certificates that are used for encrypted sessions for web servers and other kinds of things like email servers as well. And certificate authorities the way they get their authority is that companies like Apple, Microsoft, Mozilla Foundation, uh, which is a nonprofit and makes the Firefox browser, and uh, Google for Android and Chrome, uh, they agree which of these certificate authorities they're going to trust. And it's a slightly different set. All four of those companies do not include the same certificate authorities, although there's a strong overlap uh, between them. So by offering them this root trust, these companies essentially authorize these entities, these certificate authorities, to be the kind of countersign. And it's a way to ensure that in a, a, a secure transaction that you don't get a man-in-the-middle attack. So you go to a, web, a secure web server, it feeds out a certificate, it's countersigned by one of these authorities that's already baked into your browser or operating system that lets you cryptographically and invisibly uh, verify that it's a legitimate certificate, and then you can have a session that's essentially as close to free from interception as we can guarantee in this manner today. So occasionally something happens where there's a security breach or an exploit at a certificate authority, and then everybody has to jump into action. All the different companies involved have to make sure the extent of the breach and revoke certificates so they're not valid and sometimes kick out some of these entities. A couple weeks ago, uh, March uh, 23rd, I think uh, Google announced that it had discovered that CNNIC, which is a nonprofit in China that administers the .cn domain and uh, had been given uh, authority a few years ago by a bunch of these companies to be a certificate authority in these root webs of trust, as they call them, had handed off some of its authority to a third party in Egypt that's a reseller and had given them so much authority, this reseller could create and did create a certificate that could actually mimic any certificate anywhere in the world. So it could pretend to be a secure connection in the right circumstances, or somebody with this certificate could pretend uh, without it, uh, notifying browsers. However, there are now some early warning systems that Google and others have built in that notice if certificates for, say, Google.com are being used or issued by any entity other than a couple that are specified. So Google has this thing called, or I shouldn't say Google, it introduced it, called pinning, where they can say, only digital certificates issued by these two or three certificate authorities are legitimate. And Chrome will complain, and now uh, Firefox will, and there's actually increasing efforts in other browsers as well. So Google somehow got notified, perhaps through users reporting via Chrome, that they were seeing the certificate in some limited cases. Apparently it wasn't widely, it wasn't used for an attack. Uh, they revoked that certificate, and then uh, Mozilla did the same. And then just a few days ago, in uh, early April, Mozilla uh, and Google both agreed that they were going to remove CNN, uh, CNNIC, CNNIC, from their route and say, look, they can reapply, but we're not going to trust any new certificates. And Google said they're actually going to not trust the old certificates in a very short period of time. So if you go to a Chinese site or another site that's signed with a certificate by uh, by CNN, uh, by CNNIC, 
that you'll get a warning that it's not a secure transaction if you use Chrome or uh, Chrome and Mozilla. Like I say, it's only for new certificates, and CNNIC will stop issuing new certificates. So this whole deal. Here's the reason I bring this up. Been waiting to hear what Microsoft and Apple would do about it because uh, Microsoft controls still the majority of desktop browser use, and Apple has a significant percentage. So uh, of uh, uh, mobile use, right? So waiting to see what they say about it, because um, this is the first time that a root authority has been removed from these root webs of trust. And uh, no word yet. <laughs> Microsoft apparently through Internet Explorer revoked the one certificate that was issued, the kind of wildcard certificate that was problematic, uh, but has not yet announced anything as of this recording. And uh, we got no word back from Apple and haven't seen any change there either. So it's a, it's a serious issue. But um, Susie, I understand Apple does a lot of business in China. <laughs> a little bit. Yeah, China is Apple's big thing now. So maybe they're trying, you know, to avoid making some kind of misstep that would, uh, you know, damage their reputation there. I, I don't know. I don't understand a lot about this. Like reading your column has taught me a ton about security. Um, because, you know, you just don't really think about it as an end user probably as much as, as I should. But, um, yeah, you know, China is where Apple is seeing a lot of its growth, um, the, especially in the iPhones last quarter. Um, when they had that record-setting quarter, a lot of that was, was just new growth in, in China. So, yeah, um, if there's, you know, if they have to revoke all certificates from CNNIC, I don't, do you think that might, might cause problems for them in China? That's, I wonder if that's why it's taking so long because, I mean, technically this is both a huge issue and not a huge issue because it wasn't um, an exploit. And CN Nick said, oh, you know, kind of our bad. We didn't mean to do this. But, it, you know, clearly all the policies about how certificate authorities are supposed to work and be independently audited should have prevented this. And they didn't. So that's why Mozilla and Google said, look, you can come back, but you're going to have to go through the hoops anybody's, you know, did to apply. CN Nick is an independent authority, but it actually is under uh, a ministry in China gives it its daily orders. Like it's literally had said, it's without hiding it, said, you know, we're independently construed. It's part of this uh, Chinese Academy of Sciences. However, um, we, you know, we take our marching orders from this arm of the Chinese government that is, and that's a totally typical thing in China. And, and that caused concerns in 2009 when they were being considered by Mozilla. Mozilla has a totally open process where everything is discussed about issues like this, even things like, are we going to include a new certificate authority? And if you follow the thread for that discussion, which I looked up, there were a lot of concerns raised, including would CNN or CNNIC release a certificate that would intercept Gmail? It's like, well, they didn't exactly. So you could see at one level, this isn't a breach in the sense, it's a breach of trust and maybe competency rather than an outright attempt at surveillance. And, um, but it does, you know, raise the same concerns. Now I talked to Mozilla's uh, security chief a few, uh, a couple months ago for an article for another publication. And, uh, and he pointed out that there's the arm of the US government that would like to become a certificate authority. And what Mozilla is considering again, very openly was only allowing it to issue certificates or only recognizing the certificates it issues for government controlled domains. So .us, .gov, and .mil in the U.S. would be the, the three that the U.S. government would be authorized to issue. And uh, I thought that was interesting. And that is apparently the future of certificates is scoping. So right now you have 500 to 600 certificate authorities that can issue certificates for any domain or a wildcard for every domain. It's very risky. And you have companies like Google and Twitter and so forth all working to scope which certificates are valid for them. And that's getting tighter and tighter. So within a, another year or so, it's going to be very hard for any arbitrary authority to sign off on any arbitrary domain. And that takes a huge amount of that risk down. And, and Apple, uh, so again, Google and uh, Mozilla are at the forefront of this. There's a way right now that any domain, so if Macworld wanted to say today, uh, Macworld, our secure site, can only be signed by uh, by certificates can only be signed by you know VeriSign and Thought or something like that. You could do that today, but only Google Chrome, uh, Android browser, the Chrome OS browser, and uh, the uh, uh, Firefox and Thunderbird would recognize those limitations. Safari and Internet Explorer and Opera would not. 
but there's an, there's an extension that got put in place, um, and it, hopefully if that spreads, so let's say within a year or two, everyone will be up to date, and then this whole problem gets minimized, and instead of us worrying about this particular problem <laughs> or it coming up, it just stops being a real problem, and then there's other security exploits that'll, that'll come up. But I think the issue about China is big. It's like if, if Apple says, yeah, yeah, we're uh, just going to pull CN, Nick, or Microsoft said that, that's different than, I mean, Google does a lot of business in China, but their relationship with China is more fraught. There's a lot more tension there. Uh, and uh, Mozilla as an international, you know, nonprofit foundation, essentially the way it's organized, they don't have any truck with that. They don't really care, per right. se. So um, I think Apple and Microsoft have, uh, have more to risk if they, if they pull the national domain registry <laughs> from the root certificate uh, store that they have, that could be issues. So we'll, we'll see what happens. But it's, you know, it's a little disturbing if, that's, if uh, major security flaws can't be dealt with because of governmental um, interactions. But let's, let's move on. So uh, Susie, uh, before we go to our next topic, I understand uh, you have some very important information about <laughs> learning and information to tell us about with our first sponsor, The Great Courses. Yeah, our first sponsor today is The Great Courses. So I think a, this would appeal to a lot of our podcast listeners because we're the kind of people who like to learn. You know, I graduated in college in 2001, but, you know, you never stop learning, and that's what The Great Courses makes possible. These are audio and video lecture series, and they're from top professors and experts in their fields. So it is kind of like taking a little college course without having, you know, write papers or take tests or any of that stuff. Um, the one that I recommend, the one that they, they hooked me up with and I checked out is called Understanding Investments, and it's taught by Connell Fullenkamp, who's a financial economics professor at Duke. Um, Duke beat Wisconsin for the tournament last night, and I'm really upset about that. But this um, Duke professor really does know a ton about investing, and the course covers everything you would ever want to know. I mean, you think like, okay, yeah, I invest in my 401k or whatever, but this goes into everything from picking mutual funds, real estates, commodities, risk, return, inflation, leverage, like everything. And But the courses are broken up into smaller chunks so you can you know learn at your own pace you can choose video or audio and it's just really good material it's presented really clearly I learned a lot um, watching a few of these lectures so the great courses is celebrating their 25th anniversary this year so they have over 500 courses on tons of subjects science math history art music philosophy you name it um, and then you can download this stuff to your computer, you can stream it via the apps, you can get the video and audio lectures on DVDs or in CDs. They have every format that you would want. So that's really convenient. And they also have a special offer for Macworld listeners. So you can order from eight of their best-selling courses, and that includes understanding investments. And they're offering up to 80% off the original price. So to Take advantage of that. It's a uh, limited time, so you should do it soon. Um, you go to thegreatcourses.com slash Macworld. That's thegreatcourses.com slash Macworld to see the best-selling courses that they have um, you know, discounted for you. There's a selection of eight of them. And yeah, check them out. You can, you can really learn a lot. It's super convenient. And one more time, that's thegreatcourses.com slash Macworld. And we'd like to thank them for supporting the Macworld podcast. I feel better informed just hearing about it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's pretty cool. Well, uh, we, I talked at the outset that uh, we have some timely news. And the timely news, of course, is that Apple Watch pre-orders are coming. We're almost here. And uh, you wrote recently about, there was, it seemed like there was a little confusion last week that Apple was going to put the watches on pre-order last week. Somebody, I think some site either made a mistake or said the wrong Friday or something, because I saw my Twitter feed uh, go a buzz about, wait, is it tonight? Is it when? when? And then it was like, no, no. And you haven't, I think you posted an article. It's like, it's 12.01 a.m. on Friday the, what is it, the 10th, right? It's Friday the 10th. Yes. So it's like Thursday night is the night yes. you'll have to stay up really late. Thursday night is Apple Watch pre-order Eve. Yes. And 12.01 a.m. Pacific Friday morning is... It's D-Day. You make some w cookies, Day. you leave them out for Phil Schiller, <laughs> he comes down your chimney and takes your Apple Watch order. He, he takes your credit cards, he yeah. goes through your wallet and he comes back. Uh, so th this is, again, this is one of these things that Apple manages to do is they, uh, 
they create a lot of excitement about people placing orders for a product <laughs> that isn't yet shipping, which I always find fascinating. Well, but the really cool thing about this pre-order is usually when they take pre-orders, it's just like, oh, go on the website and pre-order it. That's a pre-order. Like, no, no big deal. But this time, they're actually going to have them in the stores as well, since this is a personal item and, you know, something that they want you to wear all day, every day. You got to make sure you're picking the right one. So if you haven't been able to decide just by looking at the web, by listening to people like us jammer on about it forever, um, you can go to your local Apple store and they will have them to try on. At 12.01 um, a.m. on Pacific on Friday? No, no. Oh. That'll probably be when the store <laughs> opens on Friday. But yeah, so you'll be able to go in and try them on and see which one really makes sense for you. Um, I'm totally stumped on which one I'm going to order. I'm not going to lie. And I have to order it online, like right at 12.01 a.m. Pacific. So I'm not going to get a chance. I have tried a couple of them on, but I'm still, I have no idea which one I want to get. Yeah, I feel I probably have to, uh, this is the, you know, the great, the great uh, problem with being technology writers, of course, is, oh no, I have to get some new equipment, new exciting equipment. How terrible for <laughs> yeah. me. That's awful. Uh, yeah. But, but I, th I think I, I, I think for myself, I would not order one right now. It's kind of like when the first iPhone came out, I almost didn't get one because I wasn't sure where it would fit in my writing in 2007. And then I went down to, you know, sort of cover the launch. And I'm like, you know, I better get one of these things because it's going to be big and I need to. And now this time around, it's like, I certainly don't need an Apple. I don't need an Apple Watch. I'll say it openly. I don't need one. Nobody really want needs one. Yeah. I don't want a first generation product, uh, whatever, but I need one to write about. So I'll yes. be up at 12. I'm going to set my alarm and. You know, I'll be up a little bit later than usual and sit there and watch this ordering systems fail <laughs> and be commiserating on Twitter Yay! with everyone as we hit reload. That and, part's kind of fun. I actually oh, like that. Maybe it won't fail this time. I mean, th there's no phone companies involved this time. Yeah. So maybe it won't fail. Yeah. I, ordering the iPhone 6 at midnight was kind of uh, not a smooth experience. <laughs> but um, yeah, who knows? I think maybe the demand will be a little less by the time they get to the you know iPhone 6. Everyone knows that, yeah, new iPhone coming out. I need that. But like you said, this is a first-gen product. So uh, it's going to be really interesting to see what happens. I mean, they're doing two weeks of pre-orders. They usually only do a week before it starts shipping on the 24th. So, yeah, I don't know. If you're still deciding which one to get, um, we have, I'll put this in show notes, we have a, a little video and a, a buying advice column to help you pick, pick one out. The thing that I'm really fascinated by, I don't know if you saw this, Rob Griffiths did a blog post on his blog where he did kind of a matrix and he went and looked up the dimensions and weights of every single combination. Ooh. And the different sport bands weigh differently. So if you get the Apple Watch Sport with the white band, it's heavier than the Apple Watch Sport with the black band. I have no idea why. And that's Fascinating. Yeah, and that's what's messing me up right now. Like I was like, "Oh yeah, I'll get the white band." And I mean, I'm sure it's only like a gram or two, but it's just messing with my head. Like I'm like it's making me second guess everything. A gram on the wrist makes a big difference. And you know, and I've got um I've had in the past, although very well under control now, some Repetitive strain injury, RSI, some carpal tunnels, some rotator cut. Like I got, you know, I'm a, I'm a decrepit middle-aged man now, apparently. <laughs> Although I've come a long way. I have uh, uh, unsolicited recommendation, not a sponsor, Handies, H-A-N-D-E-Z-E gloves. I've worn these for knitters and my friend Adam Angst, longtime Mac writer from Tidbits, as you know, uh, he recommended these to me, I think, 15 years ago. I've gone through probably 20 pairs. I wear through them and they provide just enough... Uh, I know this is a great thing for a watch app, but you know, if you need to wear a watch, your hands should be in better shape. They've got a little tension and warmth in the hands and they've helped me enormously. But I am concerned about putting something on my wrist because more weight there is going to change the balance of everything. So even something that weighs quite, uh, quite little. So I may get an Apple watch and then find I don't want to wear it most of the time and use it for testing. And, and uh, you know, this is the question. When something costs this much, are people going to buy it and put it in a drawer? It seems very unlikely because you'll have the cognitive dissonance of having spent that much money and not wear it. And early adopters, there's a little bit of a status, no matter whether you buy a sport edition or an edition, ed edition, edition, the edition edition from Apple, uh, you're still going to have that sense of it. So uh, I, I just can't imagine this is a throw in the drawer product. I figure people will resell them if they don't like them. There might be a big 
uh, resale market available right away as people try it out and go, oh, it was $350 or $700 or $1,000. Uh, I want to get rid of it. And they're in short supply so I can get my money back, you know, because I expect there'll be shortages. Apple certainly couldn't have, you know, however well they do demand estimation, there's always issues and particular models are always the thing if there's many models. So I suspect like if you buy the thousand dollar, what is it? There's the there's a thousand dollars. The stainless steel one with a certain band is a thousand bucks. Maybe there aren't going to be enormous supply of those initially. Not as restricted as the edition, obviously. And maybe you put that on eBay and you get twelve hundred for it, or you get nine hundred, but you don't get you know five hundred uh, a few weeks after it comes out. So I think that I think there will be a resale market right away. Yeah, yeah, I think you're right, especially since I mean it's going to launch in a bunch of countries um, on the 24th, but not everywhere. So yeah, if you decide you don't want it quickly and you don't want to return it to Apple, yeah, you probably could sell it for a lot like right away. Any last minute considerations for people who are getting set up? They should have iOS updated so that the useless Apple Watch app is available to be useful. Yes. Yep. Um, update to, what is that, eight, uh, iOS 8.2? 8 to get two dot something mm -hmm. right it's a, a micro update they don't ios 8.3 is still in beta testing isn't yeah it? yeah maybe that'll come with the watch um i wonder if they'll ship that this week because it's not necessary i think that's why they stuck the watch app into the 8.2 chain so that um so that would be available but i wonder yeah and then ios apps that are getting watch apps as part of them are already being updated now so if you want kind of a you know preview of what you can expect um, just based on what's on your phone already, you can open the App Store app and look at your updates and start poking through the update notes and you'll see like, okay, this update puts, you know, your to-do list on your Apple Watch. So there's a lot of those already. And if, you know, if you look on your phone, you'll see the ones that you have that are getting Apple Watch versions. Of course, there'll be, um, the, I think the Apple Watch app is going to point you to to apps, if you know you don't have it already, it'll you know highlight those in the store for you. We're going to do a big thing this week on the apps that we're most excited about, because you know it could be hit or miss. Like I'm going to be really selective about what apps I want bugging me on my wrist, since it's <laughs> it's mostly just like a notifications engine, you know. So I'll try any old app out on my phone, but when it comes to putting them on my watch, I'm I. I, I can see myself being a little more selective just because it's on your body. It's tapping you on the wrist. Hey, rewind one second for me. I don't think I realized this because I have not been doing my intensive study of the Apple Watch yet. If you have an app, so is there a way that iOS tells you what apps have uh, glances or other iWatch uh, or Apple Watch uh, features? Can you find that from iOS or from the Watch app now? Or will you only know when you've got a watch and pair it? I think when you have a watch and pair it, um, that, that the Apple Watch app that's on your phone will let you decide which apps you want on your phone and what that'll, that's where you'll like tweak the notifications and get everything set up. Is, is in that app. So right okay, now so. that app isn't doing much for people because <laughs> no one has a watch. I mean, Man, some, some people do, but I don't. I wish it would show you what apps. It's funny right now, like that would be a great, you know, it's kind of a marketing app, unfortunately, mm -hmm. an unremovable marketing app. And if they had started as people had started releasing and getting approved uh, Apple Watch updates, it would have been interesting if they just listed those so you could look and get kind of a preview. Oh, oh this is, I mean, build a little more excitement. It would be a little more information too, but yeah, I guess we'll have to wait. So, so April 24th is when the watches are actually going to arrive in people's hot little hands and be put on their hot little wrists. Yes, exactly. That's, that's going to be an interesting day. We better plan to get no work done that day. No work <laughs> at days. all. Oh, it'll be very it'll be fun. The reviews. And then we'll find out, of course, uh, Apple anoints uh, particular reviewers and publications uh, to write about its products in advance. And uh, usually those come out typically the Wednesday before the Friday, I think, like Wednesday at midnight before a Friday shipping date is when we see those. So we probably won't see more information about hands-on reviews until, you know, whatever it is, the 22nd or something. Yeah. Not that I'm revealing whether or not we have access. I don't know. I don't, I'm not in the office with you, so I haven't seen anything. <laughs> I haven't found anything in a bar that someone's left behind. Good. If uh, I had other... one, I would probably not be allowed to tell you that I have one, but exactly. I'm just going to tell you that I don't have one. <laughs> oh, that's right. That's called the canary uh, feature. Yeah. If you stop telling us that, then we know you have yeah. one. Yeah. 
I think uh, we're all, we're all friends here listening to the podcast. That's so right. I, I I trust you guys enough to Hello, to make myself vulnerable and say that they did not send me an Apple Watch. Well, it's true, and we know Apple is very particular about how they control news, and they they still are. They're more open, but they are. I can't very wait particular. to see who has them already, because you yeah. know it might be a, diff- a slightly different crew than we're used to. I mean, you. Like, I hope so. Honestly, certain names kind of spring to mind. So I'm hoping they give somebody like Greg Koenig, who uh, wrote this terrific breakdown, this almost frame by frame breakdown of the watch manufacturing video. Uh, it's extensive, um, incredibly interesting thing because he's an industrial designer and knows and has done by hand or had made all kinds of things. So it looks at the aluminum, the stainless steel, and the gold manufacturing process and how dramatically different they are and what Apple's done that's unique. And so I recommend that article uh, very highly to, uh, if you are if you haven't seen it already, uh, it's just a terrific piece. But I hope someone like him uh, gets it. Oh, it's called AtomicDelights.com is his blog, by the way. Okay. But I hope someone like Greg and people who are in the, who are watch fanciers, who like have spent 20 years buying watches in the industry, um, writing about it. There's been some great blogs I've pointed to and some great um, editorial sites, like fully-fledged editorial sites about watches and watchmaking, where I hope Apple does what it seems like. They invited some of those people to both the September, or was it September, and uh, more recent previews. So we know that those folks are on their radar, and that's part of the market they want to reach, or this people that those folks write for. But I think we're going to see a much wider array of, uh, of reviewers of this as a result. Yeah, I hope so. I mean, I'm sure that all of, like the watch guys and the fashion people will get watches eventually. So even if they're not in the early wave, it's going to be fascinating to see who gets them in the early wave. And yeah, I hope some of these like hardcore watch, um, you know, sites will get them. Um, like at the March event, I was waiting in line for the hands-on area and I was between the editor in chief of PC magazine and an editor for Cosmopolitan. So, yeah. So, you know, I, I, Five years ago, I wouldn't have expected to see either of those people at an Apple event. So, yeah, it's great. Um, so, yeah, I really hope that we can see some some cool fashion articles about the watch and also some, you know, some hardcore watch people who really have followed luxury watches for years because this is a new area for a lot of us in the tech press. Well, you know, there's one other thing happening uh, this week, which is I had to double check this. If you know, if you go to Google and you search... Uh, MacBook pre-order shipping, all that comes up is watches. Google's given all the juice to watches. And I eventually, I could not remember from the uh, announcement of the MacBook. And I had a, I found the press release on Apple's site, of course. And so it's Friday, April 10th, the new MacBook begins shipping. So mm-hmm. there apparently are no pre-orders. We haven't seen pre-orders from it. You go to the site and it says coming soon. Yeah. So ostensibly they open pre-orders. Maybe it's going to be at 12.01 a.m. on Friday as well, or maybe it'll be in the morning Pacific. Not sure. Uh, so that's another that's another thing, and that'll be the first MacBook shipping with the new USB Type C connector, and uh, and that'll be interesting as well. We've written a lot about that, and uh, I was not going to get one because I have a mid two thousand eleven MacBook Air that I quite like, but it's getting you know super annuated. <laughs> it's four gigs of RAM and. I was feeling a little slow, but it actually works quite well. Uh, but I think I may because I feel like I'm going to wind up testing so much USB-C equipment that it probably makes sense for me to have a unit full-time. So again, the the peril of being a uh, uh, tech writer is I probably need to get new equipment that I don't actually need but, but want to be able to test and be able to talk about effectively is this is one of the new directions Apple's taking. And it's one thing to do a review, right? You can live with a product for a couple of weeks, which is terrific, and uh, and then write about it. But I'd love to, you know, live with it longer and see how it fits in, especially if this is a direction Apple's going with laptops. Yeah, I like iMore's recent thing where they re-review things like three months later. They're like, oh, it's been three months since we got this. Like, you know, now that the glow's worn off and, you know, we've run into its limitations, like, here's what we have to say about it again. I think that's really cool. Well, you assembled an article recently that was... Uh, the iPad at five years old yeah. it was, you know, looking at five years after introduction and uh, a lot of different take, go to macworld.com and read that of course. And a lot of different takes on what it's meant to people at the time and, and today. And I realized I have two iPads, you know, one, my kids use an older um, iPad two. I've got an iPad, you know, essentially four, whatever generation that was. And, uh, re- you know, I use it to read comics <laughs> And sometimes news, uh, sometimes watch movies, but we barely use the two things. They didn't fit into our lifestyle. We use laptops and um, and small devices and touches and so forth. Uh, and so that's always that question, like, you know, when it starts to settle in, when the market matures, where does this fit into? It doesn't fit into our particular lifestyle, but it fits into, you know, 
tens of millions of people's, clearly. Yeah. Yeah, and then, okay, so there's one other thing on Friday oh, that we that? should point out. So on Friday is going to be a big day on Apple.com. So they're taking Apple Watch pre-orders for the first time. They're taking orders for the new MacBook. And also, I don't know if you've heard of a little movie called Star Wars, but... Never heard. Is that like Star Trek? Yeah, it's like Star exactly Trek, like. but but better. Um, <laughs> sorry, Star Trek. Well, that's probably true. So yeah, all the movies are going to be finally um, available on uh, the iTunes store, which they haven't been up till now. So Disney is putting them all up there and kind of, you know, to build excitement for episode seven, which comes out uh, later this year, I think. So... Yeah, that's that's big time. So I hope Apple isn't setting themselves up for <laughs> server problems when all of this goes, you know, these nerdy things all go live at the same time. Yeah, the other thing that's happening this Friday is that uh, Disney is making the Star Wars digital movie collection available for high-def downloads for the first time ever. Um, up until now, the only way you could get Star Wars was to buy it on discs, on Blu-rays, or on DVDs, and they're finally going to do downloads, so that also launches on Friday, so I hope Apple isn't setting themselves up for massive server issues when all of this goes on sale at the same time, but, you know, I'm sure they're on top of it. So iTunes works pretty well, usually, I think that's the that's the one purchasing experience yeah. that uh, I don't know. Actually, now I say that I'm not sure that. Uh, well, they got all these new servers out there. They've got these new these uh, new data centers. Every and so once forth. in Maybe a while, I fire up the Apple TV and it's just like iTunes. What iTunes? Come, <laughs> try again later. So they come back and yeah. Uh, but maybe uh, while you're you know refreshing the store, waiting to order your Apple Watch, you could also be downloading Episode Five: The Empire Strikes Back, which is the best Star Wars that they've ever made. As, well, the only problem is that Han pre-ordered first, so, <laughs> so I have, have to deal with that. Yeah. Uh, I, you know, some, someday in the future, we'll hopefully get actually the, the good versions of the uh, Star Wars episodes 4, 5, and 6 back in, in full digital glory instead of the, uh, the reworked yeah, ones. Yeah, so we'll I think say. they're the reworked ones. They're going to have a bunch of little extras, but yeah, that, that is a versions. bummer. I was a big fan of the movie Brazil, and they came out with a deluxe. I think it was a three DVD set, and it had every version. There's so many versions of it because he had a kowtow to producers as a TV version, and so forth. I feel like Star Wars. I can't even. It's like Blade Runner. There's, I think, five canonical versions of Blade Runner. Um, Star Wars is the same problem. People, if you care about a movie, and there's things that are problematic because people don't like, you know, moral difficulty, you wind up with many different versions of it. Yeah. Uh, but speaking of other things that cut close to us, uh, let's take a break to talk about uh, one of our other sponsors this week, Harry's. Uh, so Harry's, uh, Harry's <laughs> did not shoot first. Harry's gives you a clean shave close to the skin. And uh, so Harry's is uh, another one of these wonderful companies like uh, Warby Parker that uh, was founded, in fact, by one of the same founders of Harry's. Uh, Harry's tries to remove the middleman from transactions. So instead of paying and dealing with the fuss of people in the middle, not men in the middle doing security problems, but all the intermediaries that take a cut. So shaving is has become very expensive because you've got companies that make stuff and they ship it to retailers and retailers lock them up in cases. You have to ask someone to unlock these expensive razor blades and you pay way too much. And the experience you get is fine. It's not great. You're not getting the best razors in the world, even though you're paying a ton of money. So Harry's cuts that out. They deliver razor blades right to your doorstep and for much less. They are still making their profit, but they don't have to cut all these people in in the, in the middle. They just have to cut closely to your skin, lovingly, to give you a good shave. They like the blades that they were ordering so much, they bought the factory in Germany that made them. So they're vertically integrated, as we say, and they can control all steps of this quality process. So you can get an introductory kit for them for $15. This includes a razor, moisturizing shave cream, and three razor blades. And if you use the promo code MACWORLD, you get $5 off that. So $10 to your door, and uh, you get the whole deal, and there's no going in a store, and you know, can you unlock the case? All that nonsense, and you're paying an affordable price. And then you pay affordable prices for additional blades and shave cream as you need them. If you'd like to take advantage of this offer, go to harrys.com, that's H-A-R-R-Y-S.com, and enter the coupon code MACWORLD. Your first order, which could be $15 to get your introductory kit, $5 off that, and get started. Try a better shave today with Harry's. And thanks to Harry's for sponsoring. Yeah, I hate when they lock up the razor blades. It's really not cool. 
you feel like a criminal for or you know needing to shave. You have to. So many things in stores get locked up that are of high value. You know, in, in many states now, it's like I I need I use Sudafed. I live on Sudafed because I have terrible allergies and I have to go in there and register like a you know criminal to get. I need just need some pills. I'm not going to make meth. I swear to God, I'm not. I'm not that guy. Yeah, when I was buying baby formula, they'd have to come unlock it, and then they wouldn't just hand it to me to put in my cart. They had to take it to the register and give it to the cashier. This is like I, I wasn't allowed to touch it until I had bought it. Anyway. Well, I think we should talk about the Amazon Dash button next. Clearly. Yes. Speaking I, we, of shopping issues. Yeah, we'll, we'll so I have, we have one more topic after this. I'm going to swap it because of the perfect segue you made. So, yeah, the Amazon Dash button. I wrote about this uh, uh, last week for... Macworld and the Associated Publications. Yeah, so Amazon Dash button. Are you going to put a bunch of, of uh, reorder buttons all over your house? You know, 50 or 60 of them no. everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, reordering things you've already ordered on Amazon just really isn't that hard. And buttons around your house just want to be pushed by little kids who see a button and say, I'm going to push the button. Like, how, how many times do we ring the doorbell every time we come in the front door? Oh about, about 50. So, yeah. I picture the scene in Elf where where uh, uh, Will Ferrell is in the elevator and he presses all the buttons. He just runs them down. It's pretty. All the buttons are lit up. Yeah. In the elevator panel. Not You can tell when a movie's dated. If you go to New York now, there are no buttons in the elevators. You push your button on the outside, it gives you a slip of paper or tells you which elevator bank to go to. Oh, yeah. Cre- creeps me out, but it's apparently very efficient. Uh, and that's the same way. This sort of, it doesn't, this doesn't creep me out, but Amazon wants to tie you even more deeply into them as the place you get everything from. And when I had children in diapers, we did order all of our diapers from Amazon because they had the best price with uh, in general. And then they have this subscribe and save recurring service, oh, yeah. where, which is a great tool from the business side. It's a, it's a demand prediction tool for them. They have all these people who are going to get extra, I forget, I think we were paying 15% below list price and we are prime subscribers so we got free shipping yeah and poor you know ups guy would just be hauling diapers up to the porch hall here you go there's another sack of those but subscribe and save made a lot of sense to me because you have to predict your demand and sometimes you wind up with you know uh, 400 rolls of toilet paper in your downstairs storage room yeah, I subscribe and save a lot of things. It's nice that, I mean, they kind of bundle it up so you feel like you're, you know, you're ordering something from Amazon every few days. Your subscribe and save shipment comes once a month. So at least you're not getting, you know, a new box every other day. But yeah, it's great. All those heavy, you know, bulky things, you're not having to haul from the store anymore. But so these buttons, um, this, these are going out to Amazon Prime people. It's uh, by invitation only right now. That's right. Yeah. And they're going to be their Wi-Fi equipped, which I think is sort of hilarious, but it makes sense. People thought originally, are they Bluetooth? Is it a barcode? It's like, no, it's, it's a, it's a Wi-Fi is so incredibly cheap and you can have an older Wi-Fi standard in there too. So you don't have to have the latest, greatest thing because most systems are backwards compatible and will be forever. So you, it's got a very, very low power Wi-Fi signal. You have to pair it with your phone and they have this app out there already for uh, Amazon as the dash wand which they have in beta testing for prime uh, users as well uh, only i think only prime users as well and the wand is a thing you talk to it and um, tell it what you want or you barcode scan items and it oh, orders yeah, them that for thing. you yeah well, so this is another yeah. thing it's an experimental line in this case of course amazon is going to have brand names pay for these buttons they'll be free to you and if you want to get you know bounty paper towels Bounty is not a sponsor of this program. <laughs> Your brawny paper towels, you'll get a button with that logo on it and you'll stick it wherever it makes sense or hang it. It's got a hanger too. When you want more, you press the button. And so you know how we sometimes complain that it's clear that products were developed by people who do not have children? <laughs> uh, this one was developed by people who have children because you press the button, it will not, it only places one order and it does it in the prime method. So you get notified. You get uh, They'll do a phone okay. notification that says, hey, an order was displaced. If you keep pressing it, nothing happens until after the delivery is received. So you won't wind up with a, th- uh, you know, a pallets full of um, you know, pet food on your porch, thankfully. So that was smart. Uh, but I think Excellent. Amazon's trying to get, you know, they're trying to, they're trying to reduce the friction. That's always been, you know, I worked there in 96 and 97. And uh, uh, for six months, I'm glad, I'm glad I got out when I did. And uh, it's a crazy place. But uh, back in, I think, baked into their DNA, because even then, everything was about reducing the number of steps and the amount of friction to get someone from the idea of ordering something to finding it to placing the order and then not having to think about it. And this is one fewer step. 
Yeah. The thing that I find interesting about the concept though is not that you'd have a button for each brand, but see what I, they have a, a separate thing that they announced at the same time, which is technology that can be integrated into products. So your washing machine could have an Amazon button in it. And then you could link that. And it's unclear to me at this point, they haven't revealed because they'll ship those later this year. They'll have some devices that have embedded Amazon ordering. In that case, it's like, you know, well, can I pick my favorite kind of, even if it's a generic or an Amazon house brand, if they offer those, which they do for some things, uh, can I pick that? So when I hit the button on my washing machine, will it order only, do they only have deals with specific, you know, Tide or specific brands? Or can I set that button? And then I go one step beyond that and say, what if there was a programmable button on a lot of stuff we needed replenishment for? That made, you know, my coffee machine, it would order from my local coffee shop if they were integrated, you know, all these kinds of things. And and so I can see the generic usefulness of it, but in so specific, like I have to order from Amazon, I have to order a specific brand that seems like it appeals to a very narrow audience, but it could be so cheap for Amazon to reach them that it makes sense. Yeah, it sounds, okay, it sounds like they... They made it childproof, hopefully. But yeah, it is weird that it's only one brand because, um, yeah, I do a lot of subscribe and save things and that kind of makes it set and forget it. So you probably wouldn't go in and like, you know, check, you know, comparison shop every time to make sure that this, you know, brand of paper towels you've been getting is still the one you want to keep getting month after month. But it is good to do that every once in a while. Um, I, and I find that the subscribe and save things that I do now, they're always sending me emails that like, oh, it's a little bit different. Like this case of diapers that used to have 52 <laughs> diapers now has 51 diapers. And or the, the price has moved by a couple dollars here and there. So yeah, even Amazon's selections, they change enough that, yeah, I don't know. It's It, it, it hasn't been a big source of friction to me to 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 order things, especially stuff you've already ordered that's like there in your history, it's easy to search for. So I don't know if these buttons are for me, but yeah, it is really cool how they just keep looking for any way to <laughs> to make it faster and easier to buy things. Yeah, and I don't I don't love being bound up with Amazon for everything. It's like if I love them as a company, I might have different feelings. Like Costco is a local company to me here in Seattle. I mean, they were founded uh, near here, um, they're a pretty good corporate citizen. I mean, not to advocate, you know, again, this is not sponsored. We're all talk this is brand week on Macworld Podcast. Yeah, it really is. Brands, but but Comcast does things like they've offer health insurance to people who work, you know, a certain number of hours. They're, they're like Starbucks is the same thing. You know, it, it, the Costco and Starbucks jobs, these are still difficult jobs. They don't have great wages attached, but they're not terrible wages. Washington State in particular, we have a high minimum wage. We have the highest minimum wage in the country. Um, so when I think about companies, I'm like, well, I'd rather go to Costco and patronize them because they don't seem to be rapacious like Walmart. They don't seem to be so problematic, you know, in all different ways that, as Amazon does in terms of how it treats workers and how it uh, strong arms companies. But at the same time, Amazon makes it so convenient that I do wind up ordering from them because I don't have the time to think about it. And they've short circuited my brain. I just like, oh, well, I'll get it from them. So, you know, that's that, the issue for me is, are there going to be better tools in the future that let us arbitrage and make it as easy to order from another company? I think uh, next week we should talk about the shut-in culture. We've had that on our agenda a little bit, um, where, where there's going to be companies that essentially do that arbitrage for you. It's like, I want product X and they can go to Costco for you if you don't have the time and they charge you a small fee, but maybe it's less than it costs to drive there. Yeah. I have this issue all the time. If you factor in the actual cost of driving, if you have a car and you're in a place where you can drive, wear and tear plus gas plus all the other bits and pieces, you know, it's about 50 to 60 cents a mile. And yeah. if your cost goes 10 miles away, well, suddenly you're spending uh, 10 bucks to go there or 12 bucks. And you don't think of that. You think of maybe the gas. So there's there's a lot to come. And I think the Amazon Dash button is like another way they're trying to entrench themselves before the next level of like these kinds of services happen. So let's talk more about that maybe next week and uh, okay. about apps that help you um, buy from local businesses essentially is part of it. Yeah, I've got a lot of those. I love buying stuff through apps and not having to talk to people to buy things. It's my favorite. This is good. The shut-in <laughs> shut culture, yes. Let's yep. Well, let's, uh, let's take a quick break and talk to, about our uh, third sponsor this week before we get into our last topic. And so I want to thank uh, Casper for helping to underwrite this episode of Macworld Podcast. You may have heard about Casper. I think it's uh, kind of a, another one of the products like Harry's where they are – 
avoiding the markup part of this. So you get a little less choice. They have a few items you can get. And if it works for you, it's terrific because their cost is so much lower than the traditional mattress industry. And they, uh, they ship you a mattress, uh, you know, they send a shipping service out with it, but you think about it. It's not like a giant truck with a delivery service. They pack the thing in so it fits in a box and you open it up and it expands. I've seen pictures of this thing. It's sort of hilarious. And so what they're trying to do is, is create a high quality, long lasting, supportive sleep experience. And they're using a new kind of hybrid mattress that has premium latex foam and memory foam. That's why they can pack it in a box and it retains its shape when it opens up. You'll never get it back in that box. Let me tell you, but they do have, they do have a return <laughs> policy. You can ship it back. I'm kidding. Uh, and I, I want to try to put it back in the box after I take it out. So they've got a 100 day risk-free trial and return policy. So you get to sleep on it, which you usually can't do. You can't take a bed home from the store after you've gone through the process. I can't even tell you, my wife and I have two different kinds of backs. So you can't just go and buy, you know, one bed that, that works in a store. And if it doesn't work, you take it. It's a whole thing. So they're trying to solve that problem. Now, you know that you can spend well over $1,500 for a mattress, but Casper's mattresses cost between $500 for a twin sized mattress or 600 for a twin XL. It's 750 for a full size, 850 for queen size, 950 for a king size mattress. They get the middleman out of the way again. <laughs> That's this is the whole joy of the internet. If you remove the middleman, you can get what you want, streamline, and get these advantages like a return policy. So it's a risk-free experience to buy, and and that makes it much easier. The idea too is this is not a cheap mattress. It's not charging a low price because they've made it badly. They're charging a low price because the cost to get it to you is so low. And if you've slept on a memory foam topper or you've slept on any kind of bed like this, maybe when you've traveled, if you're in a hotel, some of them are trying out these sorts of beds, you know how comfortable it can be. So how do you get this thing? You go to casper.com slash Macworld. That's C-A-S-P-E-R.com slash Macworld. And you will get a whopping $15 towards any mattress purchase. Just use the coupon code MACWORLD when you visit casper.com slash MACWORLD to get that $50 off. So give them a try. You don't have to buy an expensive mattress to get the feeling of an expensive mattress. Go to casper.com slash MACWORLD. And thanks for sponsoring this week's episode of our podcast. So the last topic this week, this gets us into uh, an area that's interesting to interesting to everyone, I think, is uh, Comcast uh, surprisingly announced that, uh, hey, um, we're going to have two gigabit per second service to uh, the home, to like 18 million households by the end of 2015. Did that take you aback, Susie, after previous statements from Comcast? Yes. That's crazy. Really? Where? Everywhere? No. No, just, well, the thing is that they announced, it's interesting. So I, I wrote a story for Macworld about it that just went up on Tuesday morning, the day we're recording this, because uh, Comcast and a lot of the internet service providers uh, like to talk big. Hey, this net neutrality thing, these new Title II rules, these are going to uh, destroy the industry and, re and we're not going to invest any more money. And then now weeks after the FCC announced they're going to do this, Comcast says, well, we're going to invest a ton of money in improving internet across the country. Like, what? Wait, what? Yeah. So not quite as big a problem as we thought. But So the plan is they're going to use, they already have, uh, this is a little known thing. I don't know. Did you know that Comcast has an extensive business service offering, for instance? I mean, I've heard that they have a business service offering. I didn't know if it was any good or not. <laughs> it's apparently very good. I actually have business service at my home. Here's a tip. And actually, uh, Josh Centers, who's the managing editor at Tidbits, he recently, uh, he's in a, it's not rural, he's in a, uh, He's in a, a southern state that um, uh, he doesn't have a lot of options for service. And Comcast Personal was charging him a fortune for overages. He was able to switch to Comcast Business. And that's what I did at home also. There are no com no caps on Comcast Business oh. cable service. So you pay a bit more. I think I pay – I may be paying a base rate of 15 to $20 more a month. But I do online backups and I do huge downloads and, and I don't have any caps or extra fees. So it's worth it. Uh, the the they also have fiber back service for business in like downtown districts, and um, Comcast does a very good job with business. And people sometimes, you know, it's as much as people are unhappy with the home service and customer service, the business side is so much easier to deal with. 
you call, you get people on the phone. It, the whole experience is very different, and the service is actually quite good. Again, talking about brands, the brand week. Uh, so I'm not recommending them as a business offering. It's worked for me in my house in particular because I'm too far. I'm not in a, uh, a dense urban environment in Seattle, so I don't have uh, fiber offerings yet. There's a, a company called CenturyLink, which is throughout – a bunch of Western states, and they are actually rolling out limited fiber in Seattle and a co-working space I had until just recently for several months is getting gigabit internet. The minute I left, they're like, oh, it's getting installed, you know, next week. It's like, oh, oh. so um, so we are starting to see it in Seattle. I know in a lot of parts around the country, uh, you know, Google Fibers in a few cities, there are municipal operations. There are some companies like CenturyLink. There's Fios, which is Verizon service in certain states. That's, that's again, only a few million houses passed. Uh, so... Comcast is taking its existing business offering essentially where they're already running fiber or have fiber and they're uh, going to offer two gigabits per second to uh, what they say will be about 18 million households. So those are all going to be in dense urban areas. So you'll be in downtowns or business districts or things like that. And that's a huge number. That'll be by the end of 2015 because it's a fairly small uh, – and it doesn't mean that 18 million people will sign up for the service. It's 18 million – past. But by the end of 2016, they say that everyone just about, it sounds like you know, almost everyone in their current service area everywhere will be able to get one gigabit per second service because that still will work over coaxial cable. So they use a standard called DOCSIS. It's been improving over time and uh, a more advanced flavor will let them offer up to that rate. Now, we don't know what they're going to charge. Will it be $200 a month for one gigabit per second service? I don't know. Um, in some markets, it's anywhere from uh, $50 to $100 a month for gig. But when they offer, if you're in, say, Chattanooga, Tennessee, which has a municipal offering, uh, I forget what the low tier offer is, but I think it's in the t low tens of dollars a month if you just want, wow. you just want 100 megabits per second. You know, you want a gig, it's $100 a month, right? But then they bundle gigabit internet with uh, TV and phone, and you maybe your whole bundle is 150 a month. So you don't wind up paying more or very much more to get that speed. So that's something to look forward to. Do you have Comcast? Is that your service provider? I do have Comcast. <clears throat> um, I went from having a Comcast TV and internet bundle to just having the internet. So they did the thing where they give it to me for cheap, and then you know a year later they jack up the price and hope <laughs> that I'm paying automatically and I don't notice for several months, which I didn't. So yeah, it's about time for me to call Comcast and have a little talk with them. So yeah, this is this is great. I mean, I know we don't have fiber in our area because, yeah, we're kind of on the edge of the edge of town. But, yeah, if we can get, you know, faster speeds just over the coax cable, that would be a big improvement. But your article seems to say that the speed isn't really as important as the consistency. That's what I keep coming is, back to. It's, is it's that a really good point. Yeah, everyone talks about fiber, but I think what we really want is we want, most of us want to not wait, right? Like, I want to download, um, you know, iOS updates. So I have like a multi gigabyte iOS update. And I, you know, I, I like, so yesterday I have decent speed at home. I think I, the tier I pay for, it used to be, I would get higher rates. And I think they now actually are throttling to the specific tiers you pay for. So I get a very close to 16 to 18 megabits per second, but it's very consistent now. So when, uh, so I downloaded the Yosemite, uh, beta cause I wanted to install photos on another one of my machines before it's released, which, uh, just side note, we don't still don't know when photos is being released, but it's coming. It's April. It's got to happen soon. So we'll be talking about that when that's out, uh, photos for OS 10 that is. Uh, so I wanted to download this public Yosemite beta and, uh, you know, it took, I think it only took 15 minutes to download the gig plus size, whatever it was. So it wasn't terrible. Would I be happier if it took 10 seconds? Absolutely. Is it a necessity that it took 10 seconds no, but you know, if it took a minute or two, that would be fine. So there's kind of that, like, like, what do we need that's immediate? What kind of big files? It's it's going to be OS updates, which are infrequent, uh, and, and only those that aren't uh, diff updates, like the the difference updates that iOS and OS 10 will do now too. So we don't have to download, you know, a two gig file for every time we update iOS. Uh, so there's there's iOS updates, there's movie files, and there's video streaming. Really, almost everything else we do, the files are relatively small, and whether we're doing up or down, and then there's you know high quality, say two way video teleconferencing, which is doesn't necessarily have the um, 
the bandwidth requirements of uh, of movie because there's less motion and, and there's more compression involved. But finding a consistent experience to me, even if it was say 50 megabits per second, but very, very consistent. It didn't have jitter, didn't have lots of errors, didn't kind of go, you know, so yeah. <laughs> stops and starts. Like that to me is what I think most people would, would prefer. Yeah, yeah, I do a lot more streaming than I do downloading, especially of large files. Like I, you know, I stream all the TV and movies that I watch, basically. Um, but yeah, I'm not really downloading them locally very much. So, yeah, yeah I don't have the storage for it. It's like storage is still outstripped by like, am I going to download a hundred five gig movies? No, I mean I might watch a hundred in a year. That's well, my, we're both parents. Maybe we don't watch a hundred movies a year. We <laughs> watch the same movie a hundred times <laughs> over and over. Just, the, but just I think, one movie. Oh my God. And then we're going to get into, uh, you know, so five gigs is uh, a 720p version of Harry Potter, the final version. I looked it up because that's a very, was a very popular download. That's five gigs. Now the Blu-ray version, you know, Blu-ray stores, what is it? I think it's 25 to 50 gigs per disc. So if you wanted to get, you know, and that's still compressed obviously, but it's very high quality compression. So if I want a Blu-ray, uh, equivalent of a Blu-ray download, I want 1080p plus all the extras. Maybe I'll have 10 or 15 gigs of downloads. Then when we get into 4K, maybe those downloads will be so huge that they won't make sense to download or stream at all. And we'll just be buying... Di Can you imagine that if we start buying discs again, because 4K is just sort of still too much to manage for a network? Yeah, yeah. It's 4K is, is going to be a problem because, I mean, everything is streaming now, but 4K is going to be hard to stream with, you know, the bandwidth that a lot of people are dealing with. Um, but yeah, it's going to be, it'll feel like a step back if we have to start buying 4k stuff on discs. Um, there, there are some players now that will play 4k and they're like little boxes that you buy that have a bunch of like a set top box and it comes with some movies already. And then, yeah, it's connected to the internet so you can get some more, but, um, the, yeah, the selections are still pretty slim. So it wasn't super shocking that the rumor about the next Apple TV set-top box said probably won't have 4K support, you know, in, in this, this next iteration. But, you know, I just don't really know if we're, we're there yet. Um, iTunes, I'm sorry, Netflix and, and Amazon are, both have a little bit in 4K, but it's just not, you know, you'd have to have a TV, you'd have to have... Um, you know, something that will stream it. So, you know, I can't open up Netflix on my computer and get it in 4K. Like it has to be in a Netflix app on a compatible TV or set-top box. So, so there's like, there's a lot of moving parts and they're just not all advanced to, to where they need to be to put that in there. You know, I haven't followed the, the 4K set thing that closely, but I, you know, whenever I read about it, I keep coming back to the point that a lot of people just bought HDTVs in the last few years, right? We're all... Um, not all of us, I should say, but you know, a lot of people who upgraded did so recently. And you look at the TV sales markets, I've looked at projections. I've always I've been curious, there's a recurring story that Apple will introduce its own television set. It'll be an Apple TV TV, right? Uh, the, uh, <laughs> the Gene Munster prediction. And I keep thinking, they won't, we even talked about it on the podcast before, but whenever I look at the, the sales projections, there just aren't that many TVs that are going to be sold. And even monitor projections are way down because of the shift to laptop mm -hmm. and the quality. Like you can have a monitor. I've got a, I just bought a new uh, IPS, um, the third party, an Asus uh, monitor, DisplayPort, HDMI compatible for uh, my Mac. And um, this is so much better than any previous monitor I've purchased. It cost a fraction. It was like, I don't know what I spend on it. It's it's not a 4K. It's not even Retina, but it's terrific. Maybe at some point I'll get a Retina IPS, uh, you know, in-plane switching monitor. But um, this could be a monitor I use for four or five years. And I think the quality, the brightness, like LEDs, persistence versus LCD, all these things. So um, my family, we just bought an HDTV. We bought our first 1080p uh, a year or so ago. We had a 720 for 10 years. And uh, I don't, I'm not going to buy a 4K. We can't fit anything bigger in the space and we can sit close enough to it. So I figure the 4K market is going to, again, going to be led by people who have really large TVs or that are far away that they're sort of wall spanning. Does that, I don't know Have you followed that more closely because it's just not my, my space, but I don't feel like 4K is accelerating the way HDTV did. 
Yeah, I basically mostly cover TVs at CES. I did some at this year and then some in um, 2014. And yeah, when you're at CES, they're like, yep, yep, this is the big thing. Like, And, and it's sort of easy to, to buy into that. But then when you come home, you're like, no, no one's really going to buy these. So yeah, they're pushing, you know, too big, curved. Too expensive and, for now. Yeah, yeah. Curved and OLED and 4K. And they even had some 8K ones, you know, just demo units on display. But you know, no one's really selling those yet. But That's yeah, like it looks great when you're side by side and you're really comparing them, but you know, you only have one TV in your living room and yeah, you don't upgrade it very often. Um, the one I have now, I think I bought in 2007 and it's starting to have kind of a dark spot up in the and then the top sort of towards the right, there's a little shadowy area that never really gets bright anymore. So I'm looking to maybe replace it. 4K is coming down. There's some good ones. There's some companies coming out of China with really affordable 4K panels. Um, I saw one from uh, TCL that I really, really liked. So yeah, TechHive is going to be doing some more some more TV um, oh, good. reviews. Yeah. So we'll be learning about that a little more as we go. But um, yeah, it's 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 a weird market. I'm not, I don't, I don't think Apple should jump in right now. Um, because yeah, we're in this shift. It's going to take a long time for these to sort of reach critical mass where people are starting to, you know, get 4k. Like right now it's still just early adopters and a very small slice of the market, but you know, it, eventually it'll all be ready. Like the content and the internet and, you know, the, the TVs will be priced right. You'll be able to buy, you know, an affordable 4K TV at Walmart. Um, it's getting there. It's a few more years, I think. So I, I think that Apple is smart to just stay in the set-top box that you can use with any TV and not get into that whole mess right now. Well, I'll point out one last thing about this Comcast story related to, you know, the 4K and streaming and, and everything else is I, I don't necessarily, if, if they could offer, if someone came to my house, Comcast knocked on the door. We've actually had a story recently that was going around Seattle and we'd seen this in our neighborhood. CenturyLink were sending around people door to door saying we're offering fiber in your neighborhood. Well, they are offering fiber, but not to our houses. They're still not offering any better speeds to our houses. They're offering fiber in very limited places. And there have been some complaints. They apologize publicly. You know, the State Utility Commission and maybe the FCC, we'll see if there's any complaints that are that happened there. But uh, it's it's a little, a little silly. Yeah, we have fiber. It's just over there. It's still going to be wire coming to your house. Uh, but if someone offered a legitimate one gigabit per second service, I'd have to think about whether I needed that versus a hundred. Um, but I, you know, I'm paying I think sixty dollars a month now to Comcast, and I feel like in other countries, if you paid that much money, you would have like two fiber, you know, connections. You get two gigs coming to your house and and uh, redundancy. So we're we're overpaying in this country relative to the the actual cost of infrastructure and uh, regulatory requirements. But the, the the thing I'd say is the FCC, you know, has redefined what um, broadband is. Broadband is now apparently uh, 25 megabits per second down, three megabits per second up. And as a new definition, I mean, this is something I think that I think is part of, uh, we'll be coming out with the new rules that are coming out um, any day now for the, for the uh, re-regulation or the, t the shift in regulation for broadband. Uh, but I have 16 over five or something like that. So my service actually technically is no longer broadband. And will Comcast suddenly bump everybody's service up from the lower tiers to 25? Well, maybe. It doesn't really cost them anything at this point because uh, they have all the infrastructure there. They could offer it to everyone, and, and their costs have gone down. Broadband is apparently a high-profit item now, and as they have fewer TV and voice subscribers, it's going to change again. So, um, so yeah, I think, I think we're going to move closer to something where we all have this level where it's like, well, I've got 50 megs, and it's good, so... You know, what do I need more for? Maybe. And then they'll have to really market at us and say, no, no, we really want you to have gig. We put it in. Come on. What if we give you this deal? Yeah. We'll see. Uh, well, I thought, okay, we've answered every question uh, that anyone could possibly have about the subject. So we'll, <laughs> and so therefore we'll talk about it more. We're always looking for your feedback, folks. So you can send email to us at podcast at macworld.com. You can uh, reach us through the Twitter. You can go to macworld.com, find the post for this podcast, and leave comments there. We want to hear what you'd like to hear about. We're always looking for new topics from an Apple, Mac, iOS bent that we can discuss. 
and uh, and answer questions for of things you have. So join us again next week. This has been the Macworld Podcast, episode 451 for April 8th. 2015. We're brought to you this week by, and thanks to, the great courses Harry's and Casper. You can find links to all of those advertisers on our website uh, for this podcast. And Susie Oaks, great to talk to you again, and we'll talk again next week. Thank you. See you next week. <laughs>